I'm going to read from Matthew 25 this morning. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Uh, one Sunday years ago when I was the worship pastor at a church in Illinois, so I was in charge of all the music. I was Paul at another church. Um, we had a really special morning. One of those worship experiences where you like feel the Holy Spirit. Yes, of course, the Holy Spirit is always there, but you know how some Sundays you just like feel it. I had goosebumps. I could feel God moving in our service. So the service ended and I walked out into our cafe area and I was just feeling so thankful for what I had just been a part of. And I saw a man in the congregation who was one of my friends walking over to me and I thought, oh, I bet he wants to talk about just what an amazing experience we had together this morning. Hey, how's it going, friend? Katie, I was really bothered by the service today. Oh, that's not what I expected. What did, did he, what did he see that I didn't? Did, did we say something unbiblical? Did we overlook a really important prayer need? What happened? What could it be? I'm so sorry. What happened? Well, I noticed that all the singers aren't singing into their mic all the time, and it kind of feels like it's just a solo for the lead singer. I don't like that. Oh, I'm thinking, that's what you walked away from today thinking about? (laughs) That is what you took from this incredible worship experience? Now, I tell you that story because that's exactly what we are often likely to do with these parables that Jesus tells, okay? We are so likely to do that. We can get hung up on the details of a parable and miss the big idea, the main idea. And with the parable of the sheep and the goats, there's a couple of things that I think might be sticking points for us that might cause us to miss the main point of the story. So the sticking points that we have with these stories were not problems for Jesus' first audience in the first century. So I just want to acknowledge them right off the bat. I want to start from releasing us from thinking about what is not the point of the parable of the sheep and the goats so that we can talk about what the parable is saying, okay? 
Okay, so there's two main things I want to make sure we know this parable is not about. First of all, this parable is not trying to address soteriology. Woo! Soteriology. There's, there's a $5 word for you. That's a fancy word that means how salvation happens, how we're saved. On this side of the Reformation, 500 years after uh, Calvin and Luther and their condemnation of the idea of salvation by works, we can't help but wonder, reading this parable, is this parable saying we have to do good works to go to heaven? This parable has been at the center of debates about faith and works and how they interact. Uh, Potentially a Catholic understanding of this passage might emphasize that works were a part of the decision to let the sheep into eternal life. Or perhaps a Protestant approach might argue that the works were a result of their salvation. This is a somewhat relevant conversation for our time, but it wasn't in Matthew's time. It wasn't in Jesus' time. In their time, the idea of faith and works as things you could separate wouldn't have made any sense, right? The people of God were the people of God not just because they believed something in their head, but because their whole life looked different than the people around them. They are inseparably intertwined, faith and works, to be an obedient follower of God. Matthew and Jesus were more concerned with authentic obedience to God than about someone trying to earn their salvation with works. Okay, so this parable is not trying to tell us how do people get saved. The other thing this parable is not doing is trying to provide us with some sort of theology of hell. Okay, sometimes we read the parables of Jesus and we read this language about eternal fire and eternal punishment. It all sounds really scary and awful, and we think that maybe that's what Jesus is saying hell is like. That's not the point. Jesus is borrowing language. Jesus is borrowing imagery from the first century. So there was a valley outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom or Gehinnom, And often the word used for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. And the valley of Gehenna, uh, Gehenna, is where in the Old Testament, human sacrifices were done to the god Moloch in big fires. Okay? So that's what they knew about the valley of Hinnom. And then in the first century, in that same valley, there was a cemetery for Roman soldiers, which contained a crematorium, which did what? Burn bodies. (laughs) particularly the bodies of their oppressors, of their invaders, okay? So when Jesus talks about hell as this place of fiery uh, punishment, and he's borrowing imagery. His point isn't to say this is what afterlife will be like. He's just using language that made sense to them to say, you have to choose if you're going to follow God or not. And God takes seriously what you choose. That's his point. So this parable is not concerned with, you know, anything about how salvation particularly happens, or how to give us a theology of hell, okay? That's not what this parable is about. Can we agree on that? You good on that? Okay. So, now that we know what we don't have to worry about, because it's not the point of the parable, we can talk about what is the point of this parable. So what is this parable saying? To answer that question, we need to look at what's happening around this parable in Matthew. So this parable is the last parable Jesus tells in the last sermon he gives in the book of Matthew. This conversation happens with the disciples. This parable happens on Tuesday of Holy Week, two days before Passover, two days before he will be betrayed by one of his own and handed over to death. This parable and the rest of Matthew 24 and 25 
are told in response to a question from the disciples. Jesus has been foretelling his death, foretelling that there will be a day, even though he's dead, that he will rise again. And he's been telling them that there will be a time at the end of time, uh, the first century Jewish audience called that the day of the Lord, when God would make everything right. All injustice would disappear. So they're wondering, okay, he says he's going to die, but then he's coming back. What is happening? So they ask, how will we know the end is coming? How do we know? And how do we know when you're coming back? How do we know? And Jesus' very helpful answer in Matthew 24 is, well, things are going to be hard for you after I leave. And no one knows when the day of the Lord's coming except God the Father. (laughs) But, he says, I want you to know how you should be living while you wait for my return. This is how you should live while you wait. He says, be constantly alert, be ready, like the young women in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, who are watching for their bridegroom to return. While you wait, invest your time and your talents well in growing a return for the kingdom of God, like the servants in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 to 30. And here in this last parable, Jesus says, be ready by treating every person you meet as though it is me. Be ready. Be ready by treating others the way people are supposed to be treated in the kingdom of God. Be ready by living as though the kingdom of God has already arrived because in me, it has. Be ready. So the point of this parable, the big idea of this parable is that life in the kingdom is characterized by solidarity and compassionate care. Life in the kingdom of God is characterized by solidarity and compassionate care. Solidarity means a sense of support, a sense of unity, a sense of we're all in this together, affirming the value of other people, seeing ourselves as connected, as unified with other people. And compassionate care is the result of solidarity. When someone I love is in pain, I act to reduce their pain. When someone I love is in need, I do whatever I can to meet their need. Jesus is telling his disciples what normal interpersonal actions, interactions should look like in the kingdom of God. They should look like solidarity and compassionate care. That's what this parable is about. And there's three observations about this idea of solidarity and compassionate care that I want to make sure we see in this parable. First, this parable tells us that solidarity and compassionate care are a natural outcome of life in the kingdom. They're a natural outcome of living in the kingdom of God. When we are living with the kingdom of God as our reality, when we see that we are part of God's big story, when we see that every human is made in the image of God, when we see that everything we have was given to us by God, when we see that this life is not all there is, when we see how much mercy and love and grace God has given us, our natural reaction is for that to flow out to other people. This parable is not giving us a to-do list. Listen, the sheep in this parable didn't know they were doing anything all that special. They were surprised. When Jesus said that they had fed him, clothed him, visited him, cared for him, 
It wasn't something they were trying to do. And the goats in this parable seem equally surprised that Jesus would say he didn't feed them, clothe him, care for him. They weren't consciously choosing not to care for Jesus by not caring for others. In fact, the whole point of using sheep and goats here is that in some ways, sheep and goats were sort of indistinguishable from each other in the field. Sheep and goats could be a variety of colors of gray and brown and black and white. They're about the same size. They graze together. There's nothing inherently better in the first century about a sheep or a goat. They're both useful flocks to have. There's nothing about sheep and goats that prepared the audience for sheep to go to the right and goats to go to the left. It's not like Jesus was comparing ice cream and liver, okay? (laughs) In most ways, the sheep and the goats were interchangeable, indistinguishable. Only the shepherd, or in this case, the king, knew the difference. And that's the point. (laughs) It's not about what's on the outside. On the outside, the righteous and the unrighteous might have looked the same, but the king knew their heart. He knew they were different. The righteous were the ones who would just do what God says because they want God's kingdom. Matthew, actually, in his gospel here, defines righteous people as people who do God's will. They care about what God cares about. They value what God values. They act the way God wants them to act. God cares about the poor, so they care about the poor. God loves the immigrant and the orphan, so they care about the immigrant and the orphan. The ones called righteous weren't doing these things to try and impress God or get some kind of reward. And we know that because they were surprised at even being noticed. The righteous weren't trying to do anything. They were just responding to the kingdom of God as they experienced it more and more. Their hearts were being changed. Their perspective was being altered. Their actions were being shaped by being in the presence of God and by focusing on his kingdom. So the righteous don't distinguish between people who are important and people who are unimportant. Every single person matters because Every person is someone made in the image of God. So they treat the least important person as they treated everybody else with solidarity and compassionate care. The unrighteous response of, Lord, when did we see you? Seems to indicate that if they'd seen someone who looked important or worthy, they would have taken care of them. But while the unrighteous in this parable looked only for the bare minimum Jesus might require of them, The righteous sought the face of Jesus in every person they met. Last Sunday, we said that if we're still asking about how many times we need to forgive somebody, it's possible that we don't really understand how much we've been forgiven. In the same way, if we are looking to put limits, if our first reaction when faced with someone in need is to put limits on who we're willing to see as worthy of our solidarity and compassionate care, it's possible that we haven't particularly realized yet that in the kingdom of God, everyone is worthy of solidarity and compassionate care. Everyone belongs. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone bears the mark of the creator. And when we get caught up more and more in seeing people the way God does, caught up more and more in the way God says his kingdom should look, We stop thinking about the checklist of what we should do. 
we stop giving ourselves excuses not to help others. We just start to instinctively react in solidarity and compassionate care for others. A really beautiful example of this happened a few years ago in New Zealand. Um, you might remember that a couple of years ago there were two shootings at mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, and after this, um, a lot of Muslim women were worried about being out in public, fearing that their headscarves might make them a target for anti-Muslim attacks. And so the women of New Zealand started to wear headscarves. <laughs> they started to wear headscarves. Non-Muslim women all over began wearing headscarves to show their solidarity and to make it feel safer for Muslim women to be out in public. That is a natural outcome of true solidarity, an act of care and compassion. In the kingdom of God, solidarity and compassion are the natural outcome of growing closer to Christ. People who want God's kingdom naturally become more and more aware of the way they are caught up together with every other person in God's sacred world. They naturally care more and more for others. They naturally see more and more value in other people, both people the world calls important and people the world calls the least of these. So solidarity and compassionate care are natural outcomes of life in the kingdom of God, not something we have to try harder to do. The second thing I want us to observe about solidarity and compassionate care is that we do this because Jesus did it. <laughs> solidarity and compassionate care are what Jesus did. The reason we practice solidarity and compassionate care are because Jesus did. He literally became one of us. I love the way the message paraphrase of the Bible says John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. That is solidarity. Moving into the neighborhood. Jesus gave up the majesty of his throne in heaven and came to earth as a human with all our limitations. He called humans his brothers and sisters. He welcomed the outcasts, healed the sick. He said that when we're together in his name, he's there. He said that anyone who welcomes the disciples is really welcoming him. Anyone who welcomes a child is welcoming him. Jesus is present in and with every single human on the face of the earth. That's solidarity. Solidarity is what Jesus prays for in John 17, the night before his death, that the church would be one with God the same way Jesus is one with God, and that we would get we are one with each other, that in some way we would grasp how we are all connected, that we're all part of each other, that we have the breath of God in us, and Jesus has our skin on his body. That's solidarity. I've learned a lot about this idea of solidarity from reading um, a black theologian by the name of James Cone. James Cone wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree about Jesus' solidarity with the black men and women who were lynched in the U.S. He challenges us in that book to consider that the gospel of Jesus is not some rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story about God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed which led to his death on the cross. 
Jesus died in solidarity with humanity. He died opposing structures that hurt people, opposing a religious system that wanted power more than it wanted God's kingdom, opposing a political system that wanted order more than it wanted real justice. And his death, his death was so much more horrific than it had to be. Right? If Jesus died as a picture of the Old Testament sacrifice of the lamb who atoned for the sins of the people, if he came to be that sacrificial lamb that had the power to forgive all sins of all mankind, there was no need for the violence. There was no need for the beating, the scorn. Lambs at the temple were not beaten before they were sacrificed. They weren't mocked. But even in how Jesus died, he endured the worst humanity had to offer in solidarity with those who would come after him. So that when they faced the worst parts of humanity, they would know that Jesus was with them and he understood. When some of his disciples died their own horrific deaths, they knew Jesus was with them and Jesus understood. When black men and women, thousands of them, were lynched after the Civil War in our country, Jesus was with them, and he understood. When you have faced the worst of your life, the worst moments, the worst of humanity that you've come in contact with, Jesus was with you, and he understood. Jesus is present with humanity, with every single one of us, And he wants us to get that our solidarity with him is supposed to impact our lives. He says both to the righteous and the unrighteous this phrase, truly I tell you. He's emphasizing. That's like when a teacher says, pay attention. You need to get this. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, truly I tell you, pay attention. This is important. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, what you did for them, you did for me. Because me and them were one. (laughs) And to the unrighteous, when he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. Because me and the least of these were one. Jesus is is present in every person we encounter. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. He wants us to see that every pair of eyes we look into, he is looking back at us. So solidarity and compassionate care, we've said, are a natural outcome of life in God's kingdom, not something we do more try harder to do. (laughs) We've said that we practice solidarity and compassionate care because it's what Jesus did. And the third really beautiful aspect of solidarity and compassionate care that this parable tells us is that we were literally made for it. We were made for solidarity with each other, for compassionate care towards each other. This passage, this parable takes place at the throne of the Son of Man. It's a grand picture of the end time when everything God has been up to from the beginning will be completed. Verses 31 and 32 say, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This imagery is an allusion back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 7, we read a similar picture. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, the book of Daniel is all about God's sovereign rule over the world, about how whatever kingdom on earth seems very powerful right now, they're really only in power because God is allowing them to be in power. That verse is a reminder in Daniel's day and ours that God's kingdom is the only kingdom that's going to last. And Matthew talks more than any other of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, about the idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He's concerned with the culmination of God's kingdom. And Matthew sees that with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom has surely been inaugurated. And so this parable of the sheep and goats is set at the day of the Lord, at the end, when every other kingdom is passed away, when God's kingdom has outlasted every other kingdom, where God has defeated Satan and death and evil once and for all, where God has undone all of the effects of the fall and everything is like it's supposed to be again. And the sheep, by the way they live, have made it clear that they want God's kingdom. And so he says to them, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. Listen to this. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Prepared for you at the creation of the world. What kingdom was prepared for us at the creation of the world? The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, where we will reign forever as co-heirs with Christ for all eternity. God's whole purpose since the fall has been to restore the relationships that were broken, to go back to the beginning where humans and God lived and worked and tended the earth together as one in unity. And so when we get to the end of time, the righteous are faced with this eternity. They want what it looked like in the Garden of Eden, where we all lived in solidarity with each other, where we all took care of each other, where we had perfect relationships with God, with each other, with creation, with ourselves. That is what we were destined for. It's what we were made for. And do you know that our brain chemistry proves that? When we do things to help each other, Our brains produce feel-good hormones. Our bodies are testifying to the reality that God has made us to live in solidarity and compassionate care to others. This is what God has wired us for. So this parable is a challenge for us, a challenge for us to immerse ourselves in the kingdom of God and to allow that change to change the way we look at other people. This parable is a mirror for us. This parable isn't primarily a challenge to start giving more money to the homeless or get involved with a prison ministry. This parable is a mirror. This parable asks us to consider whether or not we see Jesus in the face of other people, in the face of people that are hard for us to love, in the face of people who annoy us, people who frustrate us, people we would rather avoid. This parable asks us whether we will look for the face of Jesus in other people or whether we will look for an excuse not to help them.
look for an excuse to put distance between ourselves and them. If you, like me, sometimes have trouble seeing Jesus in other people, the good news is that Jesus wants to help. Jesus wants to shape us like this. He wants us to see him in each other so we can ask him for help. Maybe there's a particular person or group of people who you struggle to see Jesus in. Right now, maybe the most important thing you can do is ask him for help. Ask him to help you see his face in theirs. See how he is present in them, in their personality, their passion, who he's made them. Last week, uh, we talked about the practice of the daily examine, the sort of at the end of every day, looking back over your day and considering what your day was like. One day when I did that practice, uh, I realized that I had gone through an entire day largely viewing pretty much every person I encountered as an interruption from something more important. I was certainly not seeing them as Jesus. I was certainly not seeing our interaction as an opportunity to practice solidarity and compassionate care. And so this week, I'm asking God to help me see people, really see them and care about them, to remember that because he made every person, every person matters to him. And if they matter to him, they matter to me. This week, as I was thinking about that, I came across uh, a story about the Zulu people of South Africa. They have a greeting that they say to one another, uh, Saubona. Saubona uh, is a greeting they use the same way we might say, hey, how's it going? But Saubona means, I see you. I see you. I see you as you are. I see your flaws and your beauty. I see your strength and your weakness. I see you just as you are, and I value you. People respond to Saubona by saying Shiboka, which means I exist for you. That's a way of responding that means I'm here with you. I value you too. You have my presence. You have my attention. This Zulu greeting is a stunning enactment of what solidarity looks like in the kingdom of God. It's what we mean by saying that here at Harbor of Hope, we are a community. We mean that we want to be a place where we see each other, beauty and flaws, strengths and weaknesses, just as we are, loved by God. We mean that we care for each other. We value each other. We are here for each other. We give each other our attention. We give each other our presence as we walk together in the kingdom of God. The communion ritual <laughs> is another way we do that. There's a reason that we take communion when we're together and not just by ourselves at home. It's because taking communion together is a ritual that reminds us we are in this together. We are one body it gives us an opportunity to see each other. When we take communion, we remember the blood and body of Jesus that was broken for us, shed for us to forgive us our sins and make a way to restore community in God's kingdom. This morning, we're going to do something that might feel uncomfortable to you, okay? I was warned that you all are New Englanders and we don't like to maybe talk to each other. 
Sam from the Midwest, we talk to each other. Um, but I want to try something this morning. If you don't want to do it, no one's going to make you, okay? You don't have to. But I would love for us to try this Zulu greeting with each other as we come for communion. I'd like to invite you this morning to offer communion to the person behind you by saying, I see you. And I'd like you to accept it by saying, I exist for you. I see you. I exist for you. I see you for who you are, your beauty, your flaws, your strengths, your weaknesses, the good, the bad, the ugly. I see you. I exist for you. I'm here in community, not just for myself, but for you, for all of us. So if you don't want to do that, you can probably go take communion in the cafe and no one will judge you. (laughs) But we're going to do this this morning, okay? We're going to take communion and practice this solidarity with each other as we take. I see you. I exist for you. So let me pray, um, and then we're going to get up and take communion together. God, thank you so much, um, again, for the gift it is to be together in community. Thank you, Jesus, for the amazing example of solidarity and compassionate care that you are. We can never do what you did. The most we can ever give up for another is nothing compared to what you gave up to be with us. And so this morning, we remember what you did for us, and we're asking for your help to be shaped more and more into your likeness so that we more and more willingly give up our our rights, our time, our space, our belongings for the sake of others. Help us be a community that really truly understands what it means to see each other and exist for each other. Shape us into that kind of community. In Jesus' name, amen.